0: The Small Queendom Podcast, episode 50. Hi, welcome to The Small Queendom Podcast. This is the host, Leah Graham. I'm so glad that you would join me today. Here on The Small Queendom Podcast, I jam on holistic personal development, wellness, and lifestyle topics. I'm so excited about this episode. It is the best of season one from the show, and I'm going to take you down a little bit of memory lane from some of our most popular episodes, and I'm just so excited and delighted that the show is about to have its first birthday. It's been 50 episodes. It's been a wild ride, and I want to thank all of the listeners who have stuck with me through all of the learning curves that it takes to produce a podcast I, you know, so, some of the earlier episodes I listened to and I kind of cringe a little bit, but I am leaving it out there because I want you to be able to see my learning curve and my learning process. And, you know, some very smart and wise person said that if you don't look back on your first attempts at something and cringe or feel embarrassed, you started too soon. And so I just want to encourage you. To get out there and start that thing that's been on your heart. For me, it was my podcast. And for you, I don't know, sky's the limit, my friend. Before we get into some of the sound bites and the snippets of the best moments of the podcast over the past year, it's a great episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I want to let you know that I created a very brief podcast survey, and I would just love you to the moon and back, if you would take like two minutes while you listen to this show right here and fill out the survey, it would help me so much to have that feedback as I am creating content over the summer while I'm taking a short break from producing weekly episodes. I'm going to be creating content, recording episodes, solo shows, and also with uh yes, in interviews, and just a little bit of feedback that I receive from you is so helpful for me to know. Hey, Leah, talk about this, and eh, we don't care about that. Hey, can you tweak this? I am so open to really produce content that you enjoy and that is valuable for you. I'm really passionate about that. So just click the link in the show notes, and I'm telling you, I will send all the high vibes and all the high fives and all. And I, I was in person, I'd give you a big hug. Thanks so much. Also, be sure that you have clicked that subscribe button because I will be putting out a season two trailer and a little bit of an announcement when season two will launch. I anticipate it will be either at the end of July or into August. All right, let's get this show on the road. Here is the best of season one from the Small Queen of Podcast. The first episode we're going to touch on will be no surprise to any of you. It is from episode 37 with Dr. Nicola Pera, the holistic psychologist from over on Instagram. Her podcast has absolutely been my most downloaded. I'm pretty sure it's hit about 60 countries. Uh, Listeners from all around the world have tuned in. In this soundbite, we're going to hear Dr. Nicole speak on addictive emotions and also the pushback that you get from when you set boundaries and how other people around you may respond. If you're intrigued and you have not listened to this episode, be sure to go back and uh, take a listen because it is a great one. Here's Dr. Nicole. I wondered if we could talk about addictive emotions because you've posted about that before. And I think it is very poignant and, you know, maybe give us an example of addictive emotion and how it's just a cycle that we repeat and repeat. And it's a story that we keep making happen in our life. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So we become addicted to emotions kind of in that same way, like you're saying, patterned, right? We think the same thoughts, we then result in the same feelings. We engage in the same behaviors. We do so consistently enough over time, they become habit. Uh, we also become addicted to emotions physiologically because emotions actually cause or resultant from, right? Both are interconnected chicken or the egg thing, right? But we have different hormones, chemicals, neurotransmitters that are released in our bodies that then our body too gets used to, right? So we get wow. used to feeling literally down to a physiological level, hormonal level, a type of way. And I say both of these things, to acknowledge that humans don't like brain, human brains, human physiologies, homeostasis, if you will, uh, a kind of a, a, a maladaptive homeostasis, but adap- you know, it's kind of what homeostasis is the return to balance, but we yes. get used to a balance sometimes that is not balanced, meaning we don't like difference or change. Um, So when we start to experience a different physiology or a different behavior, even in ourselves, even if it is logically moving toward this ideal way we want to be or feel the mere fact that it feels different, different than we're used to feeling is enough to invoke discomfort. So I think that's why change is hard. And that's where addiction comes from. So a personal example, I will share. Um, I come from a family that has a lot of rampant though, depending on who you ask, they will completely deny it to be the case, anxiety um, and a lot of chaos that kind of feeds again, part and parcel feeds the anxiety. Um, So for me, I became, if you will, addicted to anxiety, to stress. So even if over the course of my life, if you were to ask me, you know, kind of what I wanted in life or what, you know, was ideal, I would say I wanted peace, right? Right. So logically, all I wanted was to be able to kick back and relax and not feel anxious. Who would want to feel anxious? Those of us who feel anxious, it sucks. It's not a way to, to be. It's not an enjoyable life, right? However, I was so used to it that when I would find a moment of peace, right, if there was nothing objectively going on, I would notice that I would start to agitate my surroundings, whether or not it was my partner or my mental world, I'd make things up in a sense, or I'd poke, you know, partners or friends or whatever it was to invoke that same chaos, stress and anxiety that I was used to. Even if like you're saying on the same, on the other side of my mouth, I was saying, I just want peace. It's like, I was not allowing peace to happen because there was something incredibly Uncomfortable about peace for me, and I was addicted in a sense that with with something like anxiety, we have adrenaline that rushes through us, we have cortisol that rushes through us, and so like I was saying earlier, on a physiological level, my body wanted that; it was used to that. Wow. Well, why do you think it is that as we begin to
0: change and as we start to learn how to say no and set those boundaries, that other people respond so strongly?
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's two reasons, possibly more, but I'll start with two. The people that are pushing back or the relationships in which we're getting pushed back, right? More often than not, they've pre-existed. Some of them, if they're family, another hot topic, they've existed as long as at least one of us has been on the earth, right? So I say that because, and one of the reasons why these longer-term relationships and family systems, you know, as in all the members of the family... Are, are difficult to change is because they become locked, meaning we get used to the volley that is my relationship with you or my relationship with mom or my relationship with sister or even a romantic partner, right? We get used to this dynamic, right? There's a give and take and interplay and it's predictable, right? So when one of the humans in that dyad or whatever it is, start or family unit system, if you will, starts to be different, it's, it changes the dynamic. It kind of throws the person. So even like I said earlier, different than we're used to feeling, now you have someone on the receiving end of you in a relationship that's probably seeing you and experiencing you in a different way, resulting in their discomfort out of pure difference. Not to say it's better or worse. I mean, you could even be evolving for the better of the relationship ultimately, but it's different. And we don't like that, right? Remember, we, we like familiar, a, right? So I think that that for sure is is a part of it. B, it's a little more complicated and I think it underlies a lot of interpersonal uh, issues, if you will, um, that a lot of people experience. Sometimes our change makes someone feel some kind of way about themselves. So the reaction they have has less to do, if you will, if we want to be blunt and honest and dig down into it about us and more to do about them and how they're feeling experiencing us differently or seeing us do or say or be in some new way. Um, like I said, I think I can expand this globally to most reactions we get from other people have less to do with us and more to do with them. Um, but I think this is in the context of this relationship. So if I start to be different in my friendship over here, right, if I'm starting to go to bed earlier or worry more about my nutrition and, you know, my friend's boozing next to me and wondering why I'm not in the stool next to them, you know, it might be less to do with me, you know, not being there and more to do with, oh, well, now they're looking at why they're there still. Um, again, this is just a very simplified, you know, example, but, you know, and then they could be feeling some kind of way about them, but instead of saying, well, I don't like that I'm still on the bar stool," I'm now mad at you, Leah, for leaving me on the bar stool alone. How dare you? You're ruining my friendship and you don't care about me and all that other crap that we kind of make it to be. So I think those are at least two of the things that initially come to mind with why pushback happens when we put up a boundary, This is
0: a great segue into the next episode that I wanted to highlight on the best of season one, and that is episode 19, when I actually shared a part of my story. This was a hard one for me to publish because it's difficult for me to be vulnerable. It's definitely a practice. If you have not yet listened to this episode, basically when I was 11 years old, uh, my mom decided to uh, leave the family, but she took me with her and I had no contact with anyone in my family for 20 years. And there was a lot of a little bit of some complex situation and some control manipulation, gaslighting and abuse that happened. And it has been such a transformation for me to move towards a path of healing. And I have also reached back out to my family after that 20-year absence, and it's been transformational. Now, I will let you know, speaking of pushback that we just heard Dr. Nicole talk about, I did experience some pushback for um, releasing this podcast episode. Someone that I mentioned in the podcast was not happy that I was speaking on the topic and threatened financial legal action. And so I just wanted to encourage you that might be listening and thinking about needing to step out and share your story and really stand in your truth, that you just need to do it because this is about you and your life. It's not about other people. And so it's something that I'm having to learn daily. Um, but I am glad that I took that that step for myself at that time and I I'm proud of the person that I am becoming and the path of healing that I'm walking down. So here is a snippet of my story from episode 19. So that was a very scary story to experience as a child. And so we pretty much kind of lived in this shroud of hiding. And because of the shroud of hiding, like, you know, really, I learned how to like to be in a situation but not be seen. I learned how to talk to someone and ask questions, but then never learn anything about myself. I learned how to be a master of disguise of um, being okay to the people around us. Another negative issue that came up is um, I was not able to process the incredible grief and trauma that I experienced as an 11 year old going through just the complete uproot and, you know, decimation of my family. And so i think now looking back that I dealt with some intense depression. And because of the state of things, like I could not, I could not healthily express how I was feeling. And when I would express sadness or confusion or frustration, normal things, it was very much twisted. It was twisted into a story of, you know, spiritual inadequacies, and, you know, prayed out of me. And it was just very, very negative. So as I'm telling Kind of my experience to my counselor, you know, she basically says that I have experienced what is called complex abuse for most of my life a ton of emotional uh, manipulation, a lot of gaslighting, um, spiritual manipulation and control, just very difficult. Um, Anytime something was given, it always came with a lot of conditions. So it was, you know, very, very touch and go. And another pattern is that people would come into our life and then at some point they would do or say something that would make my mom mad and then they would be completely cut out. So there was just a lot of isolations, you know, it was just confusing for me. Like, why can't, why don't people stay around? Like, why does this always happen? Why do we always have these conflict with people? Why can't we have like meaningful relationships? And now I look back and I know that that is another sign of things not being right. And so what spurred all this on for me, besides thinking I needed to go to a counselor because I kept attracting negative people into my life, was after I had my son, I was holding him and I was looking at my daughter and they're about the same years apart as my siblings are. And I looked at them and I held them and I thought... Gosh, what could ever happen that would make me walk away from them thinking about my mom? And I couldn't think of anything. I came up with a lot of scenarios in my head. I came up with a lot of crazy stories. And I thought the last question of the story would be, would I be able to walk away from them? Would I be able to never talk to them again? And the answer is no way. There is nothing, nothing that they could ever do. Nothing that could ever happen that would make me walk away from my children. And that's when I realized that something wasn't right. So 30 years of my life, having such a strong voice is hard to break out of. And, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I have to remind you, like, it was my normal. I didn't know that things were different, and I was completely isolated. I had no contact with any of my family for 20 years. No one. So I have an incredible amount of grief. I have an incredible amount of grief about time that was lost. The fact that I didn't get to see my siblings get married, that I wasn't around when their babies were born that my grandmothers have since died since I left both of my grandfathers were passed away at the time and you know we didn't see my grandmothers um, very much and then when we left I didn't see them again and they died so I lost any opportunity to have a relationship with those important family bonds this next episode I want to highlight is way back from the beginning of the show It is episode eight with Beth McCord. She is an Enneagram coach, and I so appreciated her coming on and helping me uh, dig into the Enneagram a little bit more on on the surface level. And in this snippet, she starts to break down some of the types. I love the Enneagram. It has been a tremendous tool for growth and health and being a guidepost on, um, on kind of where I'm at and what are some of the stories that I've told myself and a little bit of the lens that i see the world and of course if you listen to the show at all you know i love to try to bring in the enneagram whenever i can so here is a little snippet from my conversation with beth mccord
2: from way back in episode eight and the type eights um nines and ones they're in the gut triad or the instinctual center so they they go off their instincts now they'll do it differently and they have, it's, it's mainly because there's an emotional imbalance and there is a common desire between the three. So the emotional balance between the gut center is anger. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's very different for the, the three of them. So AIDS are more visceral in their reaction to anger. It's like this intense fire that needs to be expelled quickly. They're not even thinking about it. It just happens. So think about a two liter pop that's a Diet Coke and you throw a mento in, Mm -hmm. it's going to explode, right? Mm -hmm. Like instantly it's like, push. Well, that's more of a type eight. And so it's very fast. It's very reactionary. Um, They process quickly and they're um, desire is justice, like the other two, but their desire for justice is to make sure that people are not at the, mer- uh, at the mercy of injustice. Okay. So, helping the innocent, protecting others, protecting themselves. Um, kind of so, makes me think of like an activist almost. Exactly. I mean, think about like Martin Luther King Jr. was a great type eight. Okay. Um, so, when you, you know, if a, it could even have. A five foot two, hundred pound woman who's a type eight, and she's gonna think she's six five if she sees injustice. <laughs> you know, if she sees someone hurting a child, she's gonna move in quickly, and mm-hmm. she's not gonna even think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very decisive. It's very clear. And they're the kind of people that you know say it like it is. Um, so their anger is the one that's more noticeable. Now, it's not like they're angry all the time. You know, it's, you know, it's just that when they see an injustice, um, they speak out. They're gonna speak out. Mm -hmm. Nines on the other hand are going to be, they live in a fog. And so it's hard for them to see their own desires and needs or they'll go along to get along. Um, And so they don't like anger because they don't want conflict or tension. Mm. So they suppress their anger, but they can either suppress it so much that they literally numb out in life or they're going to explode like a volcano every once in a blue moon, Mm. which really is like, wait, what just happened? Um, But the thing that they get frustrated about with injustice Um, is when other people aren't kind, and considerate, and thoughtful, and mindful of others, and respectful. So they want everyone to have a place at the table, to know that their presence matters, um, to include everyone, even if they disagree, just everyone has a place. So if they feel that people are excluding others, or being judgmental, or not thoughtful, that will make them pretty frustrated. Um, and there's so much more to all of this, but we're just getting a a high overview. Um, the ones on the other hand, their anger is repressed because that would be bad or wrong. They're the moral, um, perfectionist and they want to do what's right, black and white. And so they repress it, but it kind of comes out as criticism, being nitpicky, judgmental that they think it's advice, but others will take it as, why are you criticizing me? Um, and so it feels a little bit more prickly. Um, and so think of a two liter pop that's been shooken up, but the lid is halfway on, halfway out, off. And it's like kind of spewing on the sides, but it's not mm-hmm. a full, full, full form explosion. Um, and so that's how the one's anger kind of comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, then the next triad is the feeling triad or the heart center. And that's the twos, threes, and fours. And they have an imbalance in their emotion of shame. And they have a desire to have significance or a very specific identity. So the twos in the feeling category, they're not feeling their own feelings. They're feeling everyone else's feelings.
0: Absolutely. So I have a good friend who is a two and it's amazing. the truth for her.
2: Yeah. I, no, have no. To, I feel like I have to bring her back a little. Yes, absolutely. You have to kind of like snap them out of it, you know, if you can. Now the nines will feel the tension or the energy in a room. Like if they, they'll sense if something's off. Um, but the twos are feeling people's feelings and they have this really intense, um, awareness of the person's needs. Like it's uncanny.
0: Another one of my favorite tools for growth and health that I've experienced in my life is no surprise. It's essential oils. And this next episode is our most recent in the best of season one. And it's episode 45, where I sat down with Jared Moon on top of a mountain in Nepal. And we really broke down some of the myths and the misconceptions and really pulled the veil back on the essential oil industry. I love this episode because I can hear the beloved sounds of the villagers that we spent time with, the trees uh, blowing in the wind and the birds singing. It brings back so many great memories. So in this snippet of the conversation, we are talking about um, traceability. We're talking about pricing of essential oils. We're talking about where they actually come from and some of the really important things uh, that you need to consider when you're actually purchasing an essential oil. Uh, one of my favorite things about doTERRA is that we Truly, besides oils, we are about people, and when you just bring in the best people that you can, there is just something special that happens, and so for me, not only are the best people growing our oils, distilling our oils, but they're actually working on the ground like Jared Moon, and then there are a lot of people like me who are helping people every day heal themselves, and then be empowered to use the best of nature um, with just a lot of care and a lot of confidence. So here are just a couple snippets from my conversation from episode 45 with Jared Moon, recorded live in Nepal. So I think for the average consumer or the person thinking about, yeah, oils are pretty neat. I'm seeing them everywhere, but they, you know, this company's expensive. So I'm going to buy from this company because really they're all just the same. (laughs) Can you speak to that and a little bit even on the price?
3: Sure. So we talked a little bit earlier about um, how we source and it's very expensive to one, have me as an employee based on who, you know, my background and, and all our team's backgrounds. But then to send me to Nepal and India and multiple times a year to go and see and and be on the ground, that's very expensive. Um, But again, that uh, guarantees our our ability to um, trace the oils back to source. Um, It's also very expensive to um, do all the testing that we do. a lot of cases we have to do c14 testing so again this goes back to that example of of methyl salicylate and birch right methyl, methyl salicylate or synthetic methyl, methyl salicylate um, if you just looked at a gc you can create the profile to look just like birch chemically with all synthetic product, product um, components um, but and so it may look and smell and have the same specific gravity etc as as you can create it an oil to be identical even though it's synthetic then you have to but to, to know that it's synthetic you send it out for c14 testing carbon-14 testing and that's not cheap and there's only a few companies in the u.s. that actually do that um, companies and universities that do that so all the testing that goes into it that's very expensive and then you know all the regulations that are behind it but then like it's much cheaper, like I said, to just buy a fraction of of a, an oil, and then um, it it's kind of so a, a, an easy example of of that is like I can buy, go to a, a a car dealer, and I can get even the same car dealer, right? Like I can there are different classes of of car. They may be the same car and they may come from the same factory, but they're not all the same. There's always a premium one, right? And we are definitely on the high end of the premium because the quality is always there. The profile is always going to be there. Um, and we're not going to cut back on, you know, oh, we can make it a little cheaper by doing, you know, if it's a blend. we we could, instead of using X, we could use Y and therefore it's going to be cheaper. Um, we're going to put in the best product, the best oils, and the best ingredients to make it the product that it is.
0: And what about payment to our harvesters or our growers?
3: Yeah, so you guys, when we were at the wintergreen facility, Mm -hmm. you saw, or the the distillation, you saw them get paid on the spot. And that's uh, a huge important part to what we do and how we source, is guaranteeing fair and transparent payment and making sure that everyone in the supply chain is taken care of. Um, so a lot of companies, and this happens all the time, um, the, a, a farmer will bring his or her material to the distiller, um, or if they're the distiller themselves, they will take their oil to a, 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 a vendor, a broker um, who will then, and usually this is how it works, they won't pay them until they sell the oil. And often and a lot of times, like even the big, big flavor and fragrance companies, they won't pay their suppliers until they sell the oil. And so you could, you know, and often that's a six-month cycle. So you, 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 as a farmer, if I were to do that, like, that I would mean I would take my product, or, um, whether that's the actual oil or the, the biomass, and then I don't get paid for it until six to nine months later. And if something happens along the chain, um, I, I, we hear stories all the time of farmers that still haven't been paid from harvest that they contracted two and three years ago. And it's unfortunately something that happens far too often in, in agriculture and, and in the essential oil world. It's not just essential oils, but uh, like I said, agricultural generally but it does happen in our, in our industry and we hear stories about all the time and we have suppliers that um, come to us because they know they're going to get paid and they're going to get paid a fair price.
0: So a few minutes ago, you mentioned this word traceability, and I think maybe we probably have talked about it a little bit, but maybe we can just um, wrap that up with a bow a little bit. Sure. I've, I've definitely heard of popular oil companies say that they own their farms and so you can go see that, but that doesn't seem very realistic. In that setting, but I, what I'm getting from being here in Nepal and meeting you and meeting Rajesh and seeing the people who are on the ground, there is serious traceability here.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, I can, uh, you know, I know where a batch of oil is coming from. For example, in Nepal, each supplier that we use, I know what region they, they, they get their oil from. And in many cases, I can go back to the, the still and the area where that wintergreen came from. And see what it's like there, um, but traceability is a huge thing. If you know the the chain of, um, you can call it the chain of custody, and, and see the hands that it went through, then you can ensure that it's pure and natural. Um, if you, you know, using a broker, you have zero visibility into their supply chain. Um, the this idea of 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 you know, owning farms or having farms that's fine but that's a fraction of their their actual volume of oil um
0: so it's just kind of a fancy line they use
3: yeah it, well it's a great marketing campaign right like he, yeah we know this came from our farm like everyone you know as as consumers especially in this generation we we like to know where our products come from i i'm uh, 100% behind that but it's it's misleading to say that it comes from our farm when only a fraction of it comes from our farm. Okay.
0: Well, if it's not coming from their farm, where is it coming from?
3: Uh, it's coming from usually a broker.
0: And last but certainly not least is episode 14 with Megan Norp, where she talked about living life outside of the box. If you haven't listened to episode 14, Megan Norp and her husband, Mike, have nine children and they have spent extensive amount of time traveling in an RV around the United States. And also they went over and were in Europe for quite a bit of time and also Northern Africa. The conversation with Megan was wonderful. She is really, truly the epitome of a conversationalist. She has so much insight. And I mean, hey, if you have nine children and you have traveled around the world, there's just kind of a lot of that inner deposits that you've put into your spirit. And I'm so grateful for Megan. She talks about her life being now and how she kind of went through the process of you know, looking at where they're at and and why they wanted to start traveling and also just kind of the perspective that she has while she's traveling the world. You know, you can't see all the things and do, you know, go to all the places at once. So I just loved listening to her wisdom. It was fascinating. I hope you will enjoy it. This is episode
4: 14 with Megan Norp. You know, some things weren't as challenging for me, but I knew it was good for my kids because we had lived in very homogenous neighborhoods before that. And we, you know, hadn't seen both, you know, culturally, but also socioeconomically. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, you know, in the United States, we do that. We are most of our neighborhoods, everybody around us makes about the same amount of money and, you know, Mm -hmm. lives a very similar lifestyle. And so going into countries and seeing very different ways of living and people from very different levels of society and interacting with them was really good for all of us. And um, I absolutely want to continue giving them that gift because I see that my teenagers, especially who are able to assimilate that information better than anybody are deeper and more well-rounded than I think they were before. And then maybe some of their peers are. And so it's like, oh gosh, we got to keep doing that again because I have younger kids and I want to make sure that they all are being challenged and pushed and deepened. And one of the things that before we left that I really wanted to to say and to experience was that you hear so much on the news these days and the, the words fake news are thrown around all the time. And you do really feel at the mercy of, you know, these reporters and these websites, hoping that they're describing the situation accurately. But there have been times where I was aware of the situation when I read the news, and I'd be like, well, that's not actually how it goes down, and that's not really accurate. And so I thought, why don't we get out into the world and meet people from all of these different places so that we're politicians and you know reporters and any, anybody, educators, can tell us something and we can say, well, actually, I've been there. I've seen that. I've experienced that. I've met them that's not accurate. And I just thought if we could put ourselves and our kids in that place, how much better would we be and how much less it would be so much less easy to manipulate us and to, um, to try to, I don't know, fake news wouldn't work anymore for us. And so that's one of my other goals too, is to really experience it myself and have my kids have those same experiences. I just feel like when they become adults, the type i you know the type of leadership and um the ideas that they will have will be so much richer and um more grounded in reality so
0: you know i i will hear people say i can't do that because i have kids so whether it's like i can't you know fill in the blank whatever business it is i have kids or i can't travel because we have babies like what how do you respond to that
4: Oh, gosh, I have a lot of responses to that. Um, Go for it, girl. <laughs> first one is I get it because I have kids. I get it. And there's yeah. definitely some things where I'm like, I'm just not interested in doing that. That doesn't sound fun to me at all. In fact, when we were in New York City, we were there over the 4th of July. And they have this incredible fireworks show just a few blocks from where we were staying in Queens over the river. And so we went and we got an amazing spot and we were sitting there in the heat. And we thought we were still like four hours out because, you know, fireworks don't start till late. And we're like, you know what? Everybody's miserable. We're out. And we like left this and we were on this dock over right there on the river. It was going to be right there. And we walked home with the kids, got on the subway and and went home. And um, so I get it. There are moments when it's like, you know what? That's just not worth it. It doesn't work at this point. This is not the phase we're in, but you could say that until you're blue in the face too. Yes. And so sometimes you do just have to say, well, is there, you know, I think it's questioning. like, well, why can't you, can you do it differently? Like, can you, you know, if we, when we go to museums, you know, we do go see the mad and we do go see the museum of London and things, but we don't stay all day. It's like two hours. And so you just accept like, you know what, I'll be back. I'm in my thirties, you know, like, I'm here with the kids. We'll see a few things. Don't And try not to get too frustrated that they don't want to look at that thing for very long, but you'll be back. And so there's definitely that. And then I think the third thing I would say is, I think that so often, it's it's kind of crazy to me, your whole life growing up, it's like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And then you get there and everybody's just doing what's best for their kids in a way, which I don't even know if that is best for their kids, but all the moms are just sitting in their cars while their kids are in sports or in lessons and doing nothing. And it's or and I'm like, so why are you taking your kids to lessons for things if when they grow up, they don't even get to use it anymore? They're just going to sit in the car and take their kids to lessons. And so while absolutely we take our kids to lessons and we integrate them, I also want to show my kids that when you're an adult, it's your turn to live. It's your turn to live the life that you want to live. And, and I tell my, you know, people say, well, what do your kids want to do that? I say, well, I don't know. This is my life. And and when they grow up, they get to live their life. And so I think you have to be really careful to say, am I living my life? Or did I, when I was a kid, I lived my parents' life. And now that I'm an adult, I'm living my kid's life. And I think it's so important to model for your kids, but also for yourself. Like you're only, this is your life. And absolutely, you love your kids and you're going to take care of them and you're going to help them be happy and meet their needs and prepare them for their future. But this is your adult life. So live it, live it the way you want to live it.
0: All right, my friend, we have come to the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed that walk down memory lane of season one. I know I did. Just a reminder, I will be taking a break as I'm creating new content for season two. So be sure to click that subscribe button. And hey, if you miss me, just go back and start at the beginning of the show and pick up any of the episodes that you may have missed. And while you're doing that, if you would take two minutes and leave me a little bit of feedback on my podcast survey, which you will find the link in the show notes, I'd be so appreciative. And I will absolutely take all of the feedback from the survey as I am creating new content for you. And I'm so excited about what is to come don't forget that you can find me over on instagram at small and if you are not yet on my email list i put out generally a weekly email on tuesday just a little hello from me and you can sign up for that by going to my website smallqueendom.com all right my friend stay strong be kind i will talk to you soon bye-bye